3: Welcome
1: to our couch. Take a seat. It's time for therapy.
4: Movie therapy.
1: Hey, movie therapy listeners. It is me, Kristen, with another bonus episode just for you. Yes, you. What you're about to hear is an appearance I made on the podcast Code Switch from NPR. As you know, and as I've mentioned at the top of every episode of this show, I am the co-author of a book called How to Be Fine, and on Code Switch, I explain what How to Be Fine is all about. The hosts of the show also talk with other authors, including Whitney Houston's best friend, who wrote a memoir about her friendship with a late singer, and the author of Such a Fun Age, which was one of my favorite books in recent years. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to Code Switch wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And now, on with the show.
5: This is Code Switch from NPR. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, in for Jean.
2: And Shereen. do you know why I'm here today? I'll give you a hint. You can't judge an apple by looking at a tree. You can't judge
6: honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter by
2: looking at the mother.
5: You can't judge a book by looking at its cover. That's it. You can't judge a book. By looking at its cover. And you know what? I'm gonna ignore that mother-daughter line in that song. Like a farmer, I'm a lover. Can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Karen, you're here with me in studio because we are finally doing that books episode we promised at the beginning of the year.
2: Also, who was that singing? Bo Diddley, an early rock and roll
5: pioneer. Oh, way before my time. Mine too, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, now I want to go and listen to more of his music. So thank you for that. And that's what I'm hoping this episode is going to do for all of our listeners make you want to check out all of the books we're going to introduce you to today. And because we're Code Switch,
2: they're all books by or about people of color. So let's get to it. Yes. January is the month for self-help. All those books (laughs) on changing your diet, your look, your life. My favorite kind of books.
5: (laughs) I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I'm slightly embarrassed, but yes. Anyway, on the self-help tip, a hilarious and useful book came across my desk called How to Be Fine by Jalenta Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer. And if their names sound familiar, it's because they co-host a popular podcast called By the book, yes. Jalenta and Kristen lived by 50 self-help books, so we didn't have to. And now their book, How to Be Fine, breaks down what worked for them, what didn't work for them, and what they wished more self-help books would talk about. Like, if they're so helpful, why don't they just give them away and help? everybody. I love this idea because I've spent so much money buying them. <laughs> so it would be so good for my pocketbook. Self-help addict. Yes, I am. And Jolenta Greenberg, one of the co-authors of the book, uh, is like me. She loves self-help books. But Kristen Meinzer is more like you, Karen. She's a skeptic. I like her already.
1: I've always looked upon self-help books with suspicion. A lot of them seem to prey on people's insecurities, and the covers often make promises that are impossible for any one volume to deliver. The one guaranteed way to change your life. The number one way to make more money in the next year. The only proven method for getting your child to sleep.
5: That's Kristen reading from one of her chapters. The chapters switch back and forth between both authors, and they're both really good at writing like they talk and their individual personalities shine through. But for our purposes, I talked to Kristen. She's a woman of color and she made it a point to bring up race and How to Be Fine. What we learned from living by the rules of 50 self-help. Self-help is a hard thing to say. Self-help. I need help -help. saying self-help. Self-help. Someone write a book about it. Uh, Here we go. What we learned from living by the rules of 50 self-help books. The range of books that we've read has been quite
1: varied, as you know. We've lived by an astrology book. We've lived by time management books. We've lived by books about sleep. And in several of the books the presumption is that the reader is white to the extent where they start using words like in in one book, I believe it was The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Uh, The author even refers to one character in the book, oh, and then I had an encounter with, we'll call her hot Asian girl, so hag, and then he just starts using kind of the abbreviation. And I'm like, excuse me? Nobody else in this entire book gets their race pointed out except the one person who is presumably not white in your entire universe that you've ever met. And that's happened in more than one book where the authors use white as the default and only bring up race if they're like, yeah, and I once met this really
5: smart black guy. Kristen told me just a few books into this whole Living by 50 Self-Help Books experiment, she wanted to quit. I just I just don't know if I can do this anymore.
1: This is so exhausting because during the life-changing magic of tidying up, I was spending outside of my day job 80 hours a week at least touching items to see if they sparked joy.
5: (sighs) I love that. (laughs) And when I asked her to name the self-help book she hated living by the most.
1: Oh, my gosh. I've hated so many of them. I like It's hard to pick just one. Um, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus was pretty terrible. That one is essentially just like, hey, believe in antiquated gender roles. Women, keep your mouth shut. You talk too
5: much. Men, just be who you are and women, work your way around the men. Honestly, I could listen to Kristen rip apart self-help books for this entire episode. I think she is so damn entertaining. She is indeed. But that's not what we're doing here, right? Which is too bad.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You said in How to Be Fine, they also wrote about books that they found helpful. So did Kristen find anything she read in those 50 self-help books useful? She did. She did.
1: I absolutely loved a book called A Simple Act of Gratitude, and in that book, we were encouraged every single day to write a letter of thanks and to look at the world through the eyes of gratitude and see the good that was in the world. When people asked how we were doing to not bitch about how
2: bad the subway was, but to say something we were thankful for. Like we're taking the ratchet subway to a job we're grateful for? There you go. Uh, let's stop there, lest you give the entire book away and I drowned in your gratitude.
5: Oh, good idea. Everybody, get ready, get out your pens, write my recommendation down. It's How to Be Fine, What We Learned from Living by the Rules of 50 Self-Help Books by Jalenta Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer. It's the self-help book for people who don't have time to read any more self-help books like me. And it's also for people like Karen who are skeptical of the entire genre. Oh, and one more thing. It's available for pre-order right now, but it's not actually out until March. But instead of bitching about that, I'm reminding you all, that it feels so much better to be thankful. Where is the real Shireen? Bring her back. (laughs) I am grateful for everything.
1: You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, Kristen gave you food for the soul, and our producer Jess Kung has food for the body. Real food. Here's Jess talking with us about their recommendation.
3: Hi, howdy. Hey
2: there, Jess.
3: Yeah, my recommendation is The Key to Chinese Cooking by Irene Kuo. This book is from 1977. And, Great year. Uh, Irene Kuo died in <laughs> 1993.
2: Oh, that's sad. Yeah. So who was Irene Kuo?
3: So the main sort of historical reference for her life is this article from Food 52 by Mayuk Sen from a few years ago. But basically, she's this restauranter. Uh She grew up like lavishly rich in China so her family like staffed their kitchen with cooks from all over the country and they were able to travel a lot and sample food from all over. Eventually she like left China when Mao rose up mm-hmm. to the US and she opened these two restaurants in Manhattan Ginkgo Tree and Lychee Tree which were these like lavish food halls. Irene Quo was like How's with a very young Barbara Streisand?
5: Ooh, wow. I love Barbara Streisand. That was a while ago.
3: Yeah, so there's a profile of her from The New Yorker around her twentieth birthday, and she's quoted saying my birthday was a couple of weeks ago. I'm 20. The owners of the lychee tree are old friends of mine. I grew up with Chinese people. I used to babysit for a Chinese couple in Brooklyn. They had a restaurant and taught me to enjoy Chinese dishes. I often go to Chinatown to eat late at night. You get wonderful white hot breads with the center filled with shrimp at the little coffee shops there. Only ten cents. I love food. <laughs> Such a bargain. <laughs>
2: So, this was a well known book during its time, right?
3: Yeah, there was like a huge publicity tour because like these restaurants courted so many high profile guests. But a big push that Irene was going for was to like make Chinese food both like fancy and like accessible, as accessible as Italian or like Greek food, mm-hmm. which had been growing in prominence. So, when she pitched this cookbook, she made sure the recipes. Allotted for the limits of the American market, but also didn't shy away from the fact that you know you might be eating animal parts you aren't used to. White America,
5: did you cook anything from this?
3: Yes, last night I made her Sichuan eggplant.
5: Oh, yum! I'm
3: saying it Sichuan because that's how it's spelled out. I don't like saying it like that. No,
5: say it the (laughs) other way.
3: (laughs) Well, it's weird when you like mix languages, right? So it's like Sichuan, and it's like, oh man. (laughs) <laughs> but here's how she describes it in the like intro to that recipe. This is a stimulating stir-fried dish full of seductive aromas. Dark and gleaming, each piece of eggplant is plump and soft, and a wonderful complex of flavors comes through. Hot, sour, salty, and sweet.
5: Eggplant emoji.
3: <laughs> it's true.
2: So, you've made this sound very attractive, Jess, <laughs> but... It was published in 1977. Is there an updated version? And if there isn't, where do we find this book?
3: No, this book is actually out of print. Uh, Her family owns the rights to it, and they haven't expressed any interest in getting it republished. Mm. So it's only available through secondhand sellers. But I think that's all the better, because God knows, like, used bookstores need... The help.
2: Yes. And they're always fun to browse through and buy stuff from.
3: Yeah. So, you know, you can search for this book in particular on like thrift books or whatever. But I would also just highly recommend looking at a used bookstore and finding some older cookbook by an immigrant woman who just really missed her homeland because I guess that was a rich genre of cookbooks for a while.
5: (laughs) Thank you, Jess. Yeah. You've made me hungry. Me
2: too. That was producer Jess Kung recommending Irene Kuo's The Key to Chinese Cooking.
5: Well, this is the perfect time to bring in our next Code Switch teammate. Because, fun fact, her grandmother moved to the U.S. from Sri Lanka in the 60s and wrote a cookbook that got published. I'm talking about Kumari Devarajan. Hey, Kumari.
6: Hey, yeah, you're right. My potty, Amirtham Devarajan, uh, in 1981, published a cookbook called Curry in a Hurry which was supposed to be a guide to how to cook Sri Lankan food when you don't have all of the spices and help available that you would in Sri Lanka. And, yeah, my grandmother, she's turning 98 this year, still kicking.
2: Happy birthday, Patti. (laughs) I want to know more, and I want your Patti to share some recipes. But right now, Kamari, you're here to tell us what you learned about the late Whitney Houston's long relationship with her best friend, Robin Crawford.
5: Kumari, you got to interview Robin, which I think has been the highlight of your entire life, but more on that later. Uh, you got to interview Robin about her memoir, A Song for You, My Life with Whitney Houston.
2: And why'd you pick
5: this book?
6: So I think a lot of people would choose this book because they want to know more about the superstar that is Whitney Houston. But I'm really in it for Robin. Like, I'm a Whitney fan, but I'm a Robin fangirl.
2: You are, for real. <laughs>
6: Because, um, as you both know, you share an office with me. I've been talking about Whitney and Robin and their friendship for
5: months now. Yes. She's telling the truth about that. Kumari is like, every five minutes, oh, listen to Robin say this. I'm going to read this part where Robin says this. It's so <laughs> cute. Robin is the cutest.
6: <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Just bringing blessings. So one thing to keep in mind is nobody knew Whitney like Robin did. They were best friends, roommates, partners in crime, and later partners in business. And these two kids were wild. So when they were teenagers, they would do things like steal Whitney's mother's car without her knowing and then just speed off to New York.
2: Ooh. Ooh. I love it. every mother's nightmare. (laughs) I would have
5: loved to be in the back seat.
2: So Robin has purposefully kept herself in the background for a long time and she hasn't talked very much at all about her friendship with Whitney. Why... She's she doing that now?
6: So I think that in the later part of Whitney's life and after her death, there was so much scandal surrounding her story and it kind of clouded her legacy. I mean, this was Whitney Houston, one of the greatest superstars ever. Yes. And so Robin, who has enjoyed a mostly private life for the past 20 years, wanted to lift up the legacy of her best friend and remind us of why she touched so many people and also give us a little insight into who this person was before all of the fame.
5: I love those kinds of stories. Yeah. Like the real person, the real Whitney.
6: Right, right. The one who wore, like, dirty old sneakers and jeans. (laughs) So instead of me talking about what Robin says about Whitney, I thought I'd just let Robin herself tell you about her best friend. The day they met was their first day at a summer job as camp counselors in 1980. Robin was 19 years old. Whitney was just shy of 17. And Robin was passing out forms to all the new counselors.
7: I noticed that there was one person sitting in the back against the wall. And it was kind of dimly lit there. And um, as the light hit her face, you know, I just saw someone who, I don't know, just... When I asked her name, she introduced herself as Whitney Elizabeth Houston. It wasn't until after that, as I walked away... Um, before then i said i 'll keep an eye out on you and and um i don't know why I said that it just It just came out. We became fast friends. If we weren't at my house, then we were at hers. Her room was a wreck, stuff all over clothes were piled on the floor. Her bed sat perpetually unmade one time. When I was in a room, we kept hearing this crunching sound. We traced it to a mouse in her bag eating Lay's potato chips. Mm-hmm. We were like, what is that? You hear it? <coughs> Can't eat just one. <laughs> the physical part of our friendship was in the early years. And we enjoyed those moments, and we kept them safe. Trying to put that into words with someone who wasn't me and wasn't her is just like, why bother? They would never understand what we had at that time, two women who really loved and were there to support and care and stand by and stand up for each other. That's how we felt. It wasn't anything that we were ashamed about, but that time, they wouldn't leave you alone. When we moved to our first apartment together, we were not physical. It either was late 82 or definitely 83. We were very good roommates. I pretty much did most of the tidying up. She loved to vacuum. I don't know what she loved about vacuuming, but she would hold the cat in her left arm, like a football, and she would just vacuum. My brother was stationed in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and we went to visit him. We get there, and uh, he has this kitten, and she bonds with this cat. So um, when it was time for us to leave, she asked my brother if she could have it. Back then, you could sneak an animal on the plane, because she sure did. She got on the plane and then took a blanket from the overhead and wrapped the cat in it. And at that point, we saw black fleas, like little tiny little specks. And, um... When we landed, she took that blanket and she put it back in the uh, overhead, and that, that was bad. And we knew it was bad, but what were we gonna do with it? We were still sneaking the cat around. So we get the cat home, and there were fleas all over the apartment I mean, everywhere on my socks, and it was, it was bothering the heck out of me, but it didn't seem to be bothering Whitney much. The only ultimatum I ever gave Whitney, I was being funny about it, but I was serious, because I had had it. The fleas were like biting me, and I said, look, I can't take it anymore. Either this cat has to go, or or I have to go. And she just looked up at me, and she said, well, pack your shit. But, you know, I, I wasn't going anywhere.
5: robin crawford talking about her new memoir a song for you my life with whitney houston
2: i'm never touching an (laughs) airplane blanket that's been in the overhead
5: ever again i know ever Thank you, even if it's in plastic (laughs) Mm -mm. Uh, and thank you kamari for bringing us that yeah thanks for having me and that wraps up our first three book recommendations we've got three more coming at you they're all very good so stay with us that's after the break
2: Our editor, Leah Danella, looks really sweet, right? In case you've never met Leah, she has big bambi eyes and a soft voice and a bright smile, but when we asked what her book was,
5: it was hella scary. Who knew? What do they say, still waters run deep? But I've seen Leah act like a monster. (laughs) I cannot possibly see her as fragile. And Leah chose Tomi Adeyemi's novel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance. It's the second in a planned trilogy. The first one was Children of Blood and Bone.
2: That one starts out, they killed my mother. They took our magic. And it did very, very well. Spent several weeks on many bestseller
8: lists. So let's hear what Leah thinks. Hi. Hi. Karen, you are totally right. This book is very scary. It's um, a young adult fantasy novel set in Nigeria and the series broadly centers around this long, heated conflict between people who have magic powers and people who don't. And both of the books so far in the series are intense, but the second book was, like, relentlessly intense. Um, so I asked "Tell me about that. Children of Blood and Bone is obviously a very heavy book, but there is also a lot of, like, you know, people falling in love, deep friendships being formed. You see this, like great relationship between a sister and brother and it's it's got these like moments of lightness um and then children of virtue and vengeance man (laughs) that that was a harder read for me my whole thing
4: with these books is like is i they have to be real like book one was real or at least i tried to make it as real as possible from a personal struggle which was You know, the black identity, the marginalization, police brutality. Book two is still real. It's just these aren't issues that I've lived through. But these are issues that lots of people are living through throughout the world. Um, Therefore, I don't get to be any more frivolous. It's like, okay, this is a war. There is no happy ending. I was like, wow, the whole thing about war is how many people can I kill? Who can kill the most people the fastest? That's what war is. That's literally the game.
2: Hmm. Interesting that these are fantasy books, but she wants to root them so deeply in reality. But of course, that's true with many of the Black authors who write fantasy and sci-fi. Samuel Delaney, N.K. Jemison, and the queen of the genre, Octavia Butler.
8: Right. And Tommy said that while she was writing these books, she was thinking a lot about that and the difference between writing fantasy from a white perspective, which we see all over the place, and writing fantasy from a Black perspective.
4: Like, we don't have to imagine oppression. This is real. We don't have to imagine what it would be like to be a refugee. There are refugees. Um, So it was sort of like, okay, fantasy and sci-fi, they are all stories of oppression, but largely erase the people in our contemporary society that are actively being oppressed. So I'm going to do what fantasy and sci-fi has always done, um, but this time I'm going to do it from a very personal place.
2: This is a young adult book, Leah, but it sounds like it's getting into very adult themes.
8: For real. And Tommy said that even though it is getting into like a lot of very grim stuff, she knows that her young readers, especially her young black readers, can handle it. We have this this desire, I think, to shelter
4: younger people, even though the world as a whole has not sheltered young people, but I think that's been broken or is shattering like more and more each year just because it's like okay i can't say you're so innocent and you don't know the evils of the world and also have you practice a school shooter drill
2: Mm. that's an excellent point it really is and i'm really sad she had to make it
5: leah's recommendation was children of virtue and vengeance by tomi ediemi which sounds very intense but now i want to read these books and I'm glad that I get to start with the first one, which sounds like it's a little lighter.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> which probably means I'll be reading these books deep into the spring because these books are chunky, but Leah says they go fast. Okay, that leaves you, Bates. What books are you suggesting? I actually pulled rank and chose two. <laughs> Senior correspondent Karen grisby Bates, everyone, pulling boy- rank <laughs> as she should.
2: One is timely and funny, Shireen, and the other
5: one is timely and poignant. I like the idea of ending on funny, so let's go with poignant first.
2: Okay. That would be a story that was inspired by loss. I've known writer Susan Strait for years. She writes novels about life in the parts of Southern California that don't fit the stereotype. Her city of Riverside is far away from the surfers and Beverly Hills and the kind of things people think about when you say Southern California. She mostly writes novels, but not this time. Her most recent book is called In the Country of Women. Ooh, I like that title
5: already. What's it about?
2: Well, Susan says she's been listening to stories of her family, especially her female in-laws, for years. Hmm. But when the matriarch of her ex-husband's family died, Susan says she wanted to write the stories of Ms. Alberta's life down for her daughters. She wanted them to know the strength and drive that runs through their family. Now, this is interesting because Susan is white blonde, and Swiss-descended on her mother's side. Her former husband, Dwayne, is African-American, and his people came from Texas, Louisiana, Mm. and Mississippi. And she's writing about his people. She's writing about his—she writes some about hers, but a lot about his, that those are the people she spent most of her time around. Mm. How the women in her family got to Riverside is typical of many people who came West. What I love
9: is thinking about the way women moved across this continent because of war— because of poverty, and sometimes because they were fleeing the person who claimed to have loved them and turned out to be violent. And this was my way of honoring all of those women who came across the country by themselves. I loved this idea that people had migrated west, and that they were women, and that they were fiercely independent, and maybe not necessarily fleeing always, but moving on. And here we were in California, and all of those women, except for one, they were all buried here in Southern California. That was their promised land.
2: Susan wanted her girls to know the stories of that migration, Shireen, of mm-hmm. how the aunties, the cousins, the grandmother they grew up around made a home here, even if her girls have since moved away.
9: My three daughters have all left now for Austin, Texas, um, for L.A., and for Oakland. And I'm here, and their dad's here, and we will never leave. We're kind of the bearers of the story. We often think of all the stories, like this network of stories. I hear a new story every day from a neighbor, and I'm just astonished
2: by the bravery of of all these women around me. That was Susan Strait's memoir, In the Country of Women.
5: That inspires me to go and record my grandma, something that I think I've been putting off for a really long time, and I need to do that before it's too late.
2: Yep, you do. Go see your Nana.
5: Yes, I need to do that. Well, you promised we were going to end with something a little bit lighter. So what is that book?
2: Uh, it's called Such a Fun Age. It's a book that was just published by Kylie Reid. Kylie is a young black woman who's written a first novel that is at once funny and infuriating and of the moment. It opens when a young black woman, Amara, brings the toddler she's babysitting into a shishi boutique grocery in Philadelphia. The plan was to keep the child occupied while her parents coped with an emergency at home, so she didn't have to see it. But a white woman in the store suspects Amara has kidnapped the child and six-store security on her, and a confrontation follows.
5: Wow. That is quite an opening for a book. Yep. And you know what? It doesn't sound funny, Karen. You said this was going to be funny. Well, (laughs) um,
2: it has its moments, Kylie, Shireen, actually reminds me of a Black version of you, and you'll see why in a minute. She (laughs) was. She spoke at the Breakfast for Librarians during Book Expo in May. So here's Kylie, who actually worked as a nanny for a few years when she lived in New York, talking about life imitating art at the beginning of her book.
0: The week that my book went on submission, the police were called to a Starbucks in Philadelphia because two Black men had decided to sit down and wait for a meeting. In that same week, a young black student at Yale fell asleep in her dorm's common area when she was studying, and she woke to police who'd been called by a concerned white student. I'd written the grocery store scene three years prior, and I love hyperrealism, and so I always wondered, is this believable? Does it come across as something that would actually happen? And it's a really sad and a mixed feeling of relief and heartbrokenness to see how much the scene is very relevant right now. There's currently a large question as to how we talk about race and class, but I hope this novel sheds a light on the fact that we're always talking about race and class, whether we're calling it out by name or not.
5: And that was Kylie Reed talking about her new book, Such a Fun Age, Karen's final recommendation. And we're going to leave it there. We hope you'll take us up on at least one of these suggestions. Look out for Q&As as as well with a few of these authors on the Code Switch blog. And we're
2: trying to get back into doing songs that are giving us life. Remember those, Shereen?
5: Oh, yes. And in case you're new to Code Switch, these are the songs that someone on the episode loves because it really does give them life. And this week, Kumari picked the song. Kumari... Tell us about it.
6: So this song is You Give Good Love by Whitney Houston. It's the first track on her first album, which is called Whitney Houston, that came out in 1985. And if you look up the music video, Robin is in it. And she's one of the background (laughs) singers. And she looks so good in this, like, oversized blazer. And after the video came out, Whitney went to Robin's mother's house with the video and was like, Miss Crawford, look, there's Robin right there. Check her out. And so whenever I hear this song, I just like to pretend that Robin is singing Back Up for Whitney and supporting her and just being her rock.
5: And on that lovely, dreamy note, that's our show. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. Karen's at Karen Bates. And I'm at Radio Mirage. Kamari, what's yours? Kooks and Ladders. Oh, yeah. Kooks and Ladders. Kooks with a K. And you know, every one of you, we love hearing from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. You can send us your tricky questions about race with the subject line Ask Codeswitch.
2: Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletters. Karen writes it. She gets real funny with it. (laughs) This episode was edited by the sublime Leah Danella and produced by the incorrigible Kumari Devarajan.
5: <laughs> Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Steve Drummond, Jess Kung, Adrian Florido, L.A. Johnson, and my regular co-host Jean Demby. Our interns are Diane Lugo and Isabella Rosario. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji,
2: And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. See ya. Peace.